Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 97, Dr. Michael Heiser on the Unseen Realm. Dr. Michael Heiser holds three graduate degrees, an MA in Ancient History from the University of Pennsylvania, and both an MA and a PhD in Hebrew and Semitic Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He can translate about a dozen ancient languages, including Biblical Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, Egyptian hieroglyphs, and Ugaritic cuneiform. He currently works as a scholar-in-residence for Logos Bible Software, and he has taught college-level courses for Whatcom Community College, Liberty University, Western Washington University, Taylor University, Grace College, Marion College, and Pillsbury Baptist College. With a co-host, he produces the Naked Bible podcast, and he has authored two paranormal science fiction novels, The Facade and its sequel, The Portent. In addition to his homepage at drmsh.com, he maintains websites dealing with paleobabble, weird beliefs about the ancient world, and UFO religions. He's published many professional articles and other published pieces on countless topics connected with the Bible, including monotheism, angels, and the divine council. He's also been a prolific contributor to Bible Study Magazine, and many of his pieces for them have been collected in his book, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible. But he's here today to talk with us about his new book, The Unseen Realm, Recovering the Supernatural Worldview of the Bible. Dr. Heiser, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Dr. Heiser, at the start of your book, you describe how Psalm 82 upset the apple cart of your theology. Can you tell us how this happened? Sure. (laughs) This was during graduate school. I was sitting in church and killing some time conversing with a fellow graduate student in the Hebrew department there in church. And I don't remember what we were talking about, but I'll never forget how the conversation ended. The, the guy just he had his Hebrew Bible with him. He opened it to Psalm 82. He pointed to the first verse and said, read that. And really, for the first time, I read it in Hebrew, and it was just crystal clear. You know, the, 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 the very first verse of Psalm 82 says, Elohim nitzav ba'adat el, which is God takes his stand or takes a stand in the divine council or the council of El. And then we have Bekerav Elohim yishpot, in the midst of the gods, he passes judgment or he judges. So you have Elohim there two times in the same verse. The first one, you know, I don't want to bore anybody with grammar, but because of the singular participle there is singular, God. You translate Elohim God, the God of Israel. Pretty normal. But the second one has to be plural because of the preposition. In the midst of the gods, he passes judgment. And so I looked at that, and it was like, holy cow, that sounds like a pantheon. <laughs> and that was the, the person that I was talking with. That was you know, the, the point he was trying to make. And I had been to, at that point, I mean, I'd taught on the undergraduate level. I had one master's degree. I you know, had lots of Bible courses. I'd been to a to seminary a couple of years. And I had never seen that. Needless to say, I don't remember a word of the sermon because I was just running this through my mind uh, the, the whole time. And that became a focus for me academically, because I thought, well, what else am I missing? This is so obvious. And you, you look, you, I, I looked up English translations, and some of them were, were pretty clear. And, you know, I thought, again, how did I miss that? Other times, English translations really did their best to obscure. 
again, God judging gods. And so this became just sort of a focal point for me. I, I, I wanted to figure out what was going on here. How did this relate uh, to monotheism? Because I had, I had enough sense to know that, hey, you know, lot, lots of people have noticed this. Just because I didn't, it doesn't mean that other people hadn't. And certainly, you know, Jesus knew his Bible. The apostles knew their, you know, their, their, their Hebrew Bible. That was, you know, the, the Bible they had. All through the centuries, you know, people are noticing this. And how do we parse this? Because this isn't something you'd run into in the Westminster Confession. This isn't something you're going to run into really in any sort of standard Christianity that, that I had experienced. And I don't want to say I was offended, but I, I was a bit alarmed in, in the sense that why had I not been introduced to this before? Because, you, you know, you, you, you sort of grow up in church. I, I became a, a Christian when I was a teenager. And so I, I you know, wasn't in it as, as long as many people are. But you, you begin to trust, you know, people that, that are spiritual authority figures and that you figure, you know, know the scriptures really well. And the, the thought just occurred to me, why in the world have I never been exposed to this? My seminary professors, my pastors, you know, just friends I had that really had spent a lot of time in, in scripture. It was just sort of astonishing. I couldn't let it drop. I, I had to come up with an answer for that, and that eventually fed into a dissertation topic. And really still, it's sort of the orienting point to a lot of what I sort of do as my academic specialty, this Israelite religion, you know, the, the quote-unquote unseen realm, what biblical writers believed about the, the, the spiritual world as opposed to the human world, all that stuff. But it was really kick-started by that experience. Dr. Heiser, a centerpiece of your book is what you call the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. What is that? Well, obviously it has something to do with Deuteronomy 32 and specifically verses 8 and 9. Chances are, uh, those who are listening, if you looked at Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, you would read something like, When the Most High divided up the nations, he divided them up according to the sons of Israel. And what people don't realize, unless they have a study Bible, maybe there's a footnote there, is that the most ancient texts, Dead Sea Scrolls, those are the most ancient texts we have of the Hebrew Bible, and also the Septuagint, the, the Hebrew text that the Septuagint would have been based on, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament, it doesn't read that. Those texts say something to this effect. When the Most High divided up the nations, he divided them up according to the number of the sons of God. And so you have another one of these plural divinity sort of passages, what, what scholars refer to as divine plurality. The next verse, verse 9, says, but, you know, Yahweh's portion is Israel. Jacob is his inheritance. And so these two verses, what they describe, and the, the parallel to them is Deuteronomy 4, 19 and 20, where Yahweh takes Israel as his inheritance and sort of, you know, disinherits or puts distance between himself and the other nations and their gods. The worldview you get here is that there was a decision on, you know, Yahweh's part that he would disinherit or dispossess to reject the nations of the world. This is right after, this is in connection with the Tower of Babel event, because going back to the phrase, when the Most High divided up the nations, again, that's a reference to the division of the nations at, at Babel in Genesis 11. And we know who the nations were because Genesis 10 gives us a list of them. There are 70 or 72, depending on how you count them. But those nations are rejected. They're cast off by the God of Israel in response to what happens at Babel. Uh, again, 
they were they were supposed to disperse through the earth and carry out the the dominion mandate of Eden and whatnot, and that isn't what what they do in the biblical story in Genesis 11. They congregate together, decide to build this tower, and so on and so forth. So God steps down, confuses the languages, divides up the nations, and he puts them under the authority of the sons of God. He allots them to the sons of God. And then if we bring Deuteronomy 4 into the picture, the gods are also sort of allotted to the nations. They're, they're sort of married together. And this is the Old Testament rationale for why the nations have other gods, you know, why they have pantheons, why they, they don't worship the God of Israel. Because the next thing God does in the biblical story in Genesis 12, right after Babel, is call Abraham. And that's why Deuteronomy 32.9 says, the Lord's portion, Yahweh's portion is Israel, Jacob is his allotted inheritance. So it's as though he disinherits the nations and says, you don't want to do what I'm, what I'm asking you to do. We just got out of the flood and all that stuff. And you're still not sort of getting the hint, getting the message. Fine, I'm going to give you what you asked for. You want some other God. I'm going to, that's what I'm going to give you. I'm going to disinherit you from a relationship with me. And I'm going to assign other gods to you. And we'll see how that works. Meanwhile, I'm going to go call this guy Abraham. I'm going to start over and create my own people. And this is why the rest of the Old Testament is Israel against the nations and the God of Israel, Yahweh, against the other gods. It, it creates a framework, a worldview uh, for really the rest of the Old Testament and on into the New Testament as well. And it creates this sort of cosmic geography uh, that you see in the Old Testament, this sense that certain domains are certain territories, certain nations are under the dominion of other gods, and, they're, and, and Yahweh doesn't have anything to do with them. Uh, there, there are biblical stories to that effect where you know, biblical characters find themselves sort of outside the bounds of Yahweh's territory, and that's a, that, that's a crisis thing. Or people from the outside come into Israel and they recognize it as the domain of Yahweh. Again, there's a, there's a handful of episodes in the Old Testament that this worldview makes pretty clear. It's very understandable how they were thinking about themselves, you know, how Israelites were thinking about themselves as opposed to the nations and their gods. And it really goes back to this, and it, it bleeds into the New Testament when Paul uh, talks about principalities, powers, thrones, dominions, and all these sorts of terms. Well, they're all geographical rulership terms. And so Paul has this sense, again, of the nations are under dominion because God has decided that that's what needs to happen, what needed to happen. But eventually, in, in the biblical theological meta-narrative, a lot of what the biblical story is about is the progressive reclaiming of those nations and the, the kick-starting of the rule of the God of Israel on earth over those nations and, and sort of extracting uh, believers, you know, people for his own people, his own family, back into the fold, so to speak. And that becomes sort of a progression arc, a trajectory uh, that runs through the entire Bible all the way uh, to the end of the book of Revelation where believers are put over the nations. To him that overcomes, I will set over the nations. You know, the Messiah shares his rule over the nations with believers. So they, the, the sons of God are displaced. And going back to Psalm 82, we find there that the sons of God who were put over the nations are under judgment. We're not really told what exactly happened, but we are told that you know, in vague sort of general terms that the Israelites came to worship them, they were corrupt in their administration. So we have this antipathy that works its way all the way through the book of Revelation. And again, followers of, of the Messiah inherit that dominion and become essentially part of God's council uh, in, in a glorified new heaven and new earth. So it really stretches the whole gamut all the way from, the, from Babel 
all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, which is basically, you know, 99% of the Bible, is framed by this event. That's why I call it the Deuteronomy 32 worldview. Wow, okay, that was a good, broad summary of, I think, what the whole book is about. Yeah, in a nutshell. Some people listening, I think, might still be stuck at the idea that there are many deities or lesser gods. Mm -hmm. And this passage in the correct reading, you say, has the phrase sons of God, but it's, it's of course, not used in the same sense as the New Testament. Mm -hmm. In the context, there, there are many Elohim, many gods. And a person might think that if uh, Yahweh divided the nations among these lesser Elohim, that that amounts to his legitimating the worship of these other gods. So, you know, the people in Persia should worship one god, and the people in China should worship mm -hmm. another god. Is that an implication of this worldview? It is, and it, and it isn't. It, it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, let, let's go back to Psalm 82, because we have there in verse 6, uh, we have the gods of verse 1 that we talked about before, gods taking his stand in the divine council and judging among the, the gods, the Elohim. Those Elohim are called sons of the Most High in verse 6. So there's that connection with the plural Elohim and the, and the sons of God you know, kind of language there. You get a, a sense of that because, on the one hand, this is something that God essentially set up. And so, in one sense, that is the way it's going to be, and that, quote-unquote, legitimizes it in the sense that it explains it. It's not random. Uh, the, the problem with it is... When you get allusions to this, there's one in Acts 17, for instance, where Paul on Mars Hill is, is preaching to the uh, Greek philosophers there, and he makes this comment about how that we're all, you know, here we're all the, the product of one person and so on and so forth, and you know, he begins to wax eloquent on that point. And then he makes this sort of throwaway comment about, while God made one from one man every nation of mankind to live on the earth and all that sort of stuff. He says, God also determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Why? That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Well, if, if that was the, the motive that somehow, and you ask, well, how in the world is that supposed to work? The impression you get, it's never really spelled out, but the impression you get is that these other gods were not told in Deuteronomy 32, 8, 9 that they were bad guys. Okay, they're, they're supposed to be working for, you know, the, the high God, okay, working for the God of Israel, the God of the Bible. And they're sort of cast as spiritual caretakers, sort of like placeholders. The assumption is that whatever they're supposed to be doing, they're supposed to be ruling well, ruling justly, because they're actually condemned for not doing that in Psalm 82. In other words, they're supposed to be treating people in these nations, you know, ruling them according to the just principles of, you know, the, the true God, the, the, the high God, and all this sort of stuff. There's supposed to be a good relationship there, and somehow they're supposed to help these nations kind of find out or discover or work their way back to a relationship with the true God. We also learn another part of the picture is in Exodus, where Israel is referred to as a kingdom of priests. 
Well, well, priests are mediators. Well, who are they mediators to? Well, the other nations, everybody else. You know, Genesis 12, 3, when God calls Abraham, he, he actually includes in the Abrahamic covenant that through you, all these other nations that I've just disinherited will be blessed. So they're not entirely abandoned. There, there's something in play there where they're supposed to find their way back, where Israel is supposed to be this conduit back. But in the meantime, again, it's a fuzzy picture because we're not given a whole lot of details. The situation that is there is there because God made it that way. So I, th I think about what all you can say is that it doesn't legitimize a rejection of Yahweh by the other nations because the other nations are going to be condemned for that, are going to be criticized for it and, and, and condemned and whatnot. But on the other hand, the situation is what it is because you know, the God of Israel is presented as the sovereign who made it this way. And it's a little frustrating because we don't have this complete picture. We just have these sort of tossed out references as to how this was supposed to work. And now that it didn't, the other gods are in trouble in Psalm 82. They're, they're going to die like men. Uh, there's going to be this eschatological judgment. The dying like men is connected with the last verse of the psalm where the psalmist says, you know, God, rise up and take back the nations. So we know from other parts of the Hebrew Bible that that is an eschatological idea. We know, of course, from the New Testament, the book of Revelation, it's an eschatological idea. But what we get is that there was something that was supposed to happen here that, you know, was supposed to help, or at least these other gods were supposed to make their people aware of the God of Israel, like what the pecking order was. But they don't do it. And they come under judgment. And again, it's, it's, it's a picture that we wish, I wish, you know, because I'm, again, this is sort of the, the, where I camp out a lot. I wish we had more specific information, but the Hebrew Bible just doesn't provide it. You just get these little snippets, again, these little side comments. So on one hand, yeah, it sort of legitimizes it because that's the way it is. You know, nobody else set it up this way other than the God of Israel. But it wasn't okay for Yahweh to be rejected in, in terms of who he was and his status. Yeah, this is interesting. I took you differently when I read the book as saying that it was more like Yahweh was saying, okay, you're going to sin and reject me. Well, fine, have a bunch more sin. I'm just going to uh, subject you to the futile worship of these other deities. It's the impression I get the, uh, the decision at Babel is, is a punishment. It is punitive. But again, the, the, the crack of the door is left open in the Abrahamic covenant. And again, you get this, this language about, I'm not going to totally abandon you. Yes, you know, you're, you're not my people anymore. This, this group over here is my people. But through them, you know, you're going to be blessed and so on and so forth. It's very oblique. But the door is left open a crack. It, what's really interesting is how the church fathers, like later Christian thinkers, you know, so who inherited, you know, all this Old and New Testament. There are a number of them. This, your, your question reminded me of, there's a book, it's called uh, God's Rivals. It's an InterVarsity press book, but it, it's basically about how the church fathers dealt with this sort of situation. Again, you're not given a whole lot of information in either testament about it. But some of them thought that, again, this was deliberately designed by, by God, that in the religions of the ancient world, the, the quote-unquote pagan religions, there were elements of you know, the, the, the Judeo-Christian truth, and, and that that was deliberate, and so they could sort of learn about the true God and then come back or 
know, they would have some sort of framework that they could process, you know, the, the Messiah and the gospel. And, and other church fathers said, nah, you know, I don't really see that happening. But other ones thought that the gospel was sort of built into other religions in some way, sort of, you know, masked or veiled. And, and there's this whole discussion, you know, in the early Christian thinkers about how or why or if people could learn, you know, essentially come to the, to the quote-unquote monotheistic position where the God of Israel is, is the you know, true God among all gods, and then Jesus is his Messiah, whether that was sort of prepackaged into some of these other religions. So there's this whole discussion, and, and that book you know, tries to introduce readers to that and, and unpack parts of it. So I, I would recommend that if, if this part of the discussion is of interest, uh, that you, you check out God's Rivals and read that. So when God pronounces judgment on these, if we could call them, uh, caretaker deities in Psalm 82, you think that kind of suggests that there was some way they could have done better, they could have not screwed it up, even maybe by refusing to be worshipped. Yeah, I, that's the impression I, I do get, that, uh, again, they are they're intelligent beings, they should know what the pecking order is, but for some reason, and at some point, again, the, 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 the picture that's given to us is they just don't do it. They take the worship. They become autonomous in that sense. You know, they, uh, they abuse their position. They abuse, you know, the, the people according to Psalm 82. They rule them unjustly. They basically do what they were not supposed to do. And again, because of, of the way other divine beings are cast uh, as intelligent beings with, with freedom to make choices, they are indeed accountable. So I, I look at it this way because not of one, not because of one passage, but because you know of a whole, a whole bunch of you know passages and, and ideas that can be drawn from those passages to create again a, a picture. You know, I think we'd have to admit it's an imprecise picture, or at least an incomplete picture, of what you know would have been sort of going on in the in the, in the spiritual world in this regard uh, that's presented to us in in biblical theology. But I, I certainly think there's accountability. This is, it might be a good place to talk about Elohim. I use the, the, the phrase lesser uh, divine beings or lesser gods because while the biblical language calls these other beings Elohim, there are certain things said about Yahweh, that particular Elohim, that are not said of others. People are used to sort of processing monotheism, I think, in, in the way it's sort of been handed to us in Judeo-Christian tradition that these other gods aren't, aren't real, you know, that they're just idols. And, and that is not the, the, the picture that the biblical writers give us because they use Elohim of other entities besides the God of Israel that in, in various passages they assume are real. They assume the heavenly host is composed of spirit beings, 1 Kings 22. They're referred to as Shadim. Now, we, you know, English translations treat that as demons. It's not really the demons that you get in the New Testament, but they're sort of territorial guardian entities. That's what a Shadu comes from Akkadian. That's what the term meant. 
And it fits with the Deuteronomy 32 worldview about this territorial you know, control. But they assumed that these beings were real. So how do we process that? Well, I like to say Elohim is not a term to which we can affix a specific set of attributes. That's the way we in the West are used to processing the, the term G-O-D. When we see G-O-D, God, we sort of mentally capitalize it, and then we assign a specific set of unique attributes to it. And there can only be one of those, so that must mean all the other G-O-D-S's, the gods, they're not really real. Again, a biblical writer wouldn't do that. Elohim does not, is not about a specific set of attributes. We know that because he uses Elohim of other things besides the God of Israel. What Elohim means is it's a term you would use to describe a being that is part of the non-human world, part of the spirit world, the disembodied world. It's sort of a term of address. If I call you Elohim, you belong over there. You belong in that realm. That is your proper domain. It, it doesn't mean that they can't come from one domain to the other and vice versa. It just means that that's where you're supposed to live. That's your address. In that realm, in that neighborhood, Yahweh is an Elohim, but no other Elohim is Yahweh. There is none like him. So the, the language we get, there's none besides me, there's none like him. This is comparative language. It's, it's the language of incomparability. And only the God of Israel is described, for instance, as creator or as sovereign as, as, or as a deity that deserves worship, at least from Israel, or created all the other members of the heavenly host. Those kinds of descriptions specify that Yahweh is unique among the Elohim. But they're all Elohim. It's just that this one is different. This one is distinct. This one is incomparable. And that's really what an Israelite believed. Now, a term like monotheism, because of the way we use it, it's a 17th century term to begin with. It's a modern term. It doesn't really fit. But, and frankly, none of the other ones fit either. Polytheism doesn't really describe that. Henotheism doesn't really describe that. Monolatry you know, isn't quite you know, going to encompass all of what I just described. They all are, are partly on target, and they all are partly not on target. Uh, with what an, uh, an Orthodox, you know, a, a Yahweh-worshipping Israelite would have believed. And so I, I think it's just better to describe what, you know, an Orthodox Israelite would have believed as opposed to sticking a label on it. But because I don't like the labels, I get in trouble with everybody. You know, <laughs> you go to a church, you know, and, and you start, not that I get invited to too many of these places uh, to speak on this, but they look like, at you like you got two heads. And, you know, I, I, I'm used to that. It's okay. But it's like, look, I didn't write this thing you call the Bible. I, I'm, I'm just, there it is. You know, I, I, didn't, I can't take responsibility for it, but this is what it says. And you're getting it filtered to you through a translation. Don't, don't freak out. Don't hate me too much. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, if, if you want your theology to, to be biblical, I mean, to use an overused adjective, then you need to start paying attention to what they actually wrote as opposed to how it's filtered through a translation. So it is what it is, and that, that's one of the reasons why Unseen Realm will be controversial, because I'm trying to take a lot of the stuff I've published in journal articles or a dissertation or something and put it there you know, for the pastor and the, the interested layperson who wants to jump into academic material of, of this nature. Some people will love it. Other people are going to hate it with equal passion. You know, We understand that, but I think it just needs to be out there. Dr. Heiser, in your book, you argue that this Deuteronomy 32 worldview throws light on this famous text from the very first chapter of the Bible. 
Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness. Many ancient Catholic readers have thought that here in Genesis 1, God, that is the Father, must have been talking to the Logos, to the pre-human Jesus, just before creating, when he says, let us make. And later Trinitarian readers have taken these plural pronouns to be hints of the Trinity. But you don't agree with either reading. Why? That's correct. I don't. I, I would say if no other divine plurality passages existed in the Hebrew Bible, especially something like Psalm 82, if you wiped those right off the table that they weren't in, your, in the Hebrew Bible, then I would say, well, maybe that works. Maybe one of those two options will work. But because of what we see in divine plurality passages elsewhere, you can't you know, make these assumptions. You know, there's no way exegetically to limit what happens there to two or three entities. And because we have this wider world of divine plurality, it makes a lot more sense to take this as God speaking to the heavenly host, again, undefined numerically, because we don't have any numerical indicators there. And he's announcing his intention to a group. Let us make, you know, humankind in our image. Well, you know, we get these plurals, and then when the creating actually happens, the, the plurals sort of revert back to singulars. You know, then it's God creating humankind in his image. I think the, the most natural reading of that, especially since Genesis 1, and of course Genesis 2 and 3 and on through really Genesis 11, is really tracking on other ancient Near Eastern texts for polemic purposes. And scholars, again, this is not anything new with me, scholars have known this for centuries, that really from Genesis 1 through 11, almost everything in there that is relating especially to the first three chapters, Genesis 6, the flood, and then on into Babel, almost everything in there is taking a swipe, taking a shot at the spiritual worldview of polytheistic cultures of which Israel was familiar and which Israel is rival to, or our rival to, you know, the, the Israelite faith, uh, the elevation of, of Yahweh, the God of Israel. And this is a, a classic case because we do have, in other ancient Near Eastern texts, almost word for word in some instances in Genesis 1 and 2, even down to syntactical constructions. This scene here takes a shot at the Babylonian you know, creation story of humanity. And in that case, it's a god speaking again to a, to a group. And there are similarities. And that, that literature is older. So when the Hebrew Bible is composed here, this is an intelligent decision to mimic something in some other religion and then give it a poke in the eye by virtue of you know, asserting your own theological position. When this scene is created, there's a reason why, again, there's a familiarity built, and then there's a departure theologically from, again, this ancient Mesopotamia, in this case, uh, creation story. You know, we, we get this announcement to the group, hey, let, let's do this. But when the God of Israel creates and acts, he alone, again, the, 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 the verb forms are all singular, the pronouns become singular. He alone is making the decision to create and is actually the one creating male and female uh, humanity. And he's announcing that, and there's some relationship that that group has to what's happening, but they are not co-creators there. So the singular language, again, you could actually use against 
you know, the sort of co-creating language that you would need with the Logos figure. Well, the Logos figure is not even in view here. Again, this is polemic language to distance what's happening from other, again, accounts, other other religions, other beliefs uh, in the ancient Near East that the writer of Genesis, again, has taken a shot at. So it just makes a lot more sense contextually uh, in what we're dealing with, and also not reading the New Testament back into the Old. It makes sense contextually just to sort of read it for what it is. God announces to a group, this is what we're going to do, and then he does it. He acts on his own behalf, his own creative power, and the, and the result is, is humanity. So that also has the benefit of if we look at Genesis 1 this way, and then we encounter these other divine plurality passages, especially where the guys in the other room, the divine characters in the, in, in the room, let's just put it that way, when you get the divine characters in the same room, and some of them turn out to be bad and under judgment, and they're going to die like men, okay, reference back to Psalm 82, then it's easy to decipher that. If all you were thinking was the Trinity from Genesis 1, then starting to encounter these other passages like Psalm 82, now you're in trouble. Because now you have the other members of the Trinity as corrupt. Now you have God chastising the Son and the Spirit and saying, hey, you're going to die like men because of what you're, you've done bad here. You're, you're, you're corrupt and evil and wicked. Well, I mean, that, that just creates a conundrum, which is why in a lot of English translations and a lot of, again, early Christian discussion, Psalm 82, the plural Elohim of Psalm 82 are treated as though they're humans because they have to get out of that quandary in some respect. They've, they've been thinking divine plurality means the Trinity all the way along. Then when you encounter a passage like Psalm 82, oh, the gods there aren't really gods, they're humans. Well, how in the world does that happen? Well, it basically happens because we need it to happen because otherwise we're in trouble, you know, theologically, because we haven't been thinking outside the Trinity box. We haven't really been thinking contextually back in Genesis 1. So, to the original reader, the sting of it would be that God is doing all the work and the rest of the deities are just kind of on the sideline, apparently watching. He's talking to them, but he's doing it all? Yeah. The verbs of creation, when it comes to humanity, really when it comes to the heavens and the earth and, and human beings, are always singular in the Hebrew Bible. And again, that's a very deliberate thing on the part of the writer, again, to make it clear who the creative power is. I don't know how it is in Hebrew, but in an English, this isn't a very strange way of talking. I mean, imagine that you're hanging out with your mom and she says, I know what let's do. Let's make some cookies. Mm -hmm. And then you sit there and hang out with her and she does all the making of the cookies. Right. That's a good illustration. The geek way, the geek talk here would be, this is a plural of exhortation. You know, a singular speaker exhorting, announcing an intention, exhorting people to, hey, you know, let, let's get involved here. We're going to do X, Y, Z. And then, of course, you only have one person doing it. But there's a peripheral benefit, you know, in some context to it. The plurality language here is important for another reason, because not only does humanity share this, this thing we call the image, which, again, my view, and this certainly isn't unique to me, based on a point of Hebrew grammar, the image is not a thing put into humanity. It is a status. Okay? It, is, it is being like God. It's being a representative of God. So the images, I, I refer to them, to, to this passage as divine imaging and humans as divine imagers, again, sort of to make it a verbal kind of thing, a, an, an active thing, because that's, that's really what the image is about. It's about God creating embodied beings, which we call humans, to represent him here on the planet. 
and to do what he wants to do, that is to, to spread his good rule that we see in Eden all over the globe. Well, the plurals early on express the idea that the non-human beings that God all had already created, you know, a la, you know, Job 38 or, you know, Psalm 148, one of those passages, Psalm 33, the creation of the heavenly host and, and all that, those beings as well are like him in some way. They represent him in some way. They, they share his attributes. You know, we talk in theology about humans having, possessing God's communicable attributes, attributes that God shares. We don't have them to the same extent, not exhaustively, or with the same you know, degree of, of goodness because we don't have God's character. But nevertheless, we, we have the ability to do certain things. We have certain attributes that, that God has. He shares them with us. Well, he shares them also with these non-human divine beings as well. And that helps, again, frame other points of biblical theology because they can make decisions. They can act. They can rebel or obey, just like the humans do in the biblical story. So the plural language is important, but yet when it comes to the creative power behind what's going on and what's described in Genesis, the writer is very careful, again, to distinguish the, you know, the God of the Bible as the lone creator. There's a famous passage in Psalm 8 where it says, we're made a little lower than the angels, many translations say. Mm -hmm. Do you think that's the right way to understand that? Both we and the angels are like God, but the angels maybe are nearer to God or more like God? The Hebrew text here actually has that we are created a little lower than or a little lesser or lower than the Elohim. So the word there is Elohim, again, just a reference to divine beings and humanity is obviously, either less than God, if you want to translate it singularly. We are not gods, again, if you want to translate that in, in the plural. When it's quoted in uh, Hebrews, there we, we read angelon, okay, angels, and it, it's the Greek language. And angel by that time has sort of become, you know, a word like Elohim. Angel becomes sort of a catch-all uh, term for a, a being who isn't a human, but who also isn't you know, the God of the Bible either. Kind of like daimon, it's, it's, it's sort of a generic term, but it's also a job description. Angels, that they're messengers, that's what the term means. They're the, the divine beings who are loyal, you know, who, who are servants of the God of Israel. So in either way, either Old Testament or New Testament, however you, whichever one you want to go with, human status is, there's a lesser ontologically, I guess we could say, there's, a, there's an ontological step down, you know, from God or the gods or divine beings. Again, humans are, are viewed as lesser in, in, in that respect. But also, you know, we have this sense of also sharing, you know, something because of Genesis 1. You know, so we, we can share attributes, but that doesn't mean we're ontologically on par with Elohim or if you want to go with the New Testament language, angels. Thank you. 
Dr. Heiser, how has this research changed your view of the end state of believers? That's a good question. I think probably the easiest way to explain how this has you know, contributed to my thinking here is when you go to the New Testament and you see language like in John 1, but as many as believed in him, because speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the authority to become the sons of God. First uh, John 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God or the children of God. This language that we're so used to in Christian parlance, sons of God, children of God, that sort of thing, it has a history. It has uh, antecedents, and those antecedents are in the Old Testament. And a lot of that language is traceable, again, back to this divine plurality talk, some of these passages. And what that really means, again, and again, how it's influenced my, my thinking about the believer's eternal destiny, the end state of believers, is that if you go back to Eden, the original sort of plan was that God creates the earth. He already has the heavenly host with him, Job 38, creates the heaven and earth. And then on that planet, we've got one little slice of it that we call Eden because that is the divine abode. That's where God is. That's where his presence is localized. And the ambition is to make the whole rest of the world like that place. And to do that, God creates human beings, tells them to multiply and, you know, steward the earth and subdue it and, and all this sort of language. The impression you get is that God wants to live with his human family and his divine family all in one, all in one place, one big happy family. We represent God in this place the way he wants us to. We're his imagers. Divine beings are his images in the spirit world doing what he wants done in that realm. But we all can sort of meet together in one big happy family right here. Well, it, it goes to hell in a handbasket real fast in the biblical narrative. But that's, that's the, the end point to which God wants to bring it all back. And so when he uses this divine family language, and I referred to in the book of Revelation about us being put over the nations, believers being put over the nations. It, it really makes it more cosmic. It really feeds into glorification, theosis, humans becoming divine. That whole idea, which frankly in evangelical circles really gets short shrift. I mean, the Eastern Orthodox, you know, Christians are really up to speed on this kind of stuff and, you know, other segments of Christianity, but within evangelical circles, we have really minimized and downplayed this sort of thing. And in biblical theology, again, to the original hearers and readers of both Testaments, this is the goal. This is the goal, to, to have humans living in direct contact with the presence of God as part of his family and being made like him, being able to exist in, in, in that state. And that is really where everything ends. And so to me, it just it takes on a more cosmic dimension uh, a more divine dimension, if I, if I could say it that way, than what we're typically used to to thinking about, at least in, in evangelical circles. And in the book, the picture that you paint, if I understood it, was not that these uh, lesser deities would be saved themselves or be restored, but rather that they would be replaced by Christ and believers um, after the resurrection. Yeah, those in rebellion are, are displaced, and, and humans become part of the council, part of the divine council. I, I love Hebrews 2 for this, 
because it, it's that scene where where Jesus is saying, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm one of them. I'm human. I, I was incarnate." He's our sibling, but he presents believers to God, to the council. They're they're in the he presents them to the quote unquote congregation, and in, in English translations, you just lose the whole Old Testament context for what that scene means. If you're not thinking divine council, and again, all these antecedents, council being God's, yeah, it's, it's God's family, but it's also God's home office, so to speak. It's God has, has a family business. We're part of the family. We represent him. We do you know, his will on earth and so on and so forth. If you're, if you're not thinking in terms of divine council, cognitive framework, that whole worldview, you're going to miss really the impact of Hebrews 2. But if you have that in your head and you get the Hebrews 2 and And here Jesus is presenting believers to the council, to the congregation, and identifying with us. And and they belong here with us in the council, and I belong with them. I mean, it really sort of amplifies the whole picture, the whole concept of terms like the family of God, you know, sons of God, children of God, terms like father, okay, sonship. All these things that, that we're, again, we're familiar with uh, as Christians, but we sort of lose the Old Testament context, the Old Testament worldview through which those things are, are filtered and parsed. So we're not going to sit on a cloud and play a harp or just no, have not, a, a church yeah. service or we have a really important <laughs> job to do, right? Yeah. I mean, if, if we are over the nations in a, in a new earth, there's lots to do. There's lots to enjoy. I mean, it, it's going to be life like it was in Eden with all the blessing of it, all the thrill of it, all the, again, experiential wonder of it, but also it needs to be maintained. We, there's work to do there, and we have relationships with each other. You know, just to enjoy the, the creation, the, the planet, the way it was originally intended to be enjoyed, right there with the presence of God and the presence of, of his other, those divine beings still that were loyal to him, that were not displaced because they, they weren't rebels— you know, it's, it's no mistake that the new earth is a global Eden. This is the way Revelation describes it. What was originally planned comes to fruition in the eschaton, in, in biblical theology. That's where the narrative goes. So, no, we're not just sitting there singing 24-7 on into eternity. I mean, I, honestly, I can't imagine anything more boring. But there's lots of things to do in an Edenic world and lots of things to enjoy and people to enjoy it with. And... God to enjoy it with, divine beings to enjoy it with. It's just, it's what it was supposed to have been from the very beginning. Dr. Heiser, thank you for talking with us. Thanks for having me. This week's thinking music has been the track H by Costa T and Gofra Z. Dr. Heiser's book, The Unseen Realm, will be released on September 1st at Amazon in the USA. There's a link where you can pre-order it on the blog post for this episode. Also, in the coming months, Dr. Heiser will release a book called Supernatural, which is a sort of shorter and easier-to-read companion volume. I'll put a link for that on the blog post when it becomes available. This is a way that you can support the Trinity's podcast by clicking one of our Amazon links and then buying anything... It doesn't increase what you pay to Amazon, and we get a small little percentage of what you spend. I'm sure you'll have feedback on this episode, so be sure to comment on the blog post, or better yet, send me some audio in time for next week's episode. Finally, thanks for sharing this podcast episode on social media like Twitter and Facebook, and thanks for giving us a review in the iTunes store. 
Giving us a review there is probably the number one thing you can do to help other people find the Trinity's podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.